Hi, I'm Justin Hayat, and this is 36. The Lamed Vav Siddiquim is a tale built on the idea that out there in the universe, somewhere in the far corners of the world, there are 36 anonymous, really good people who hide in the shadows but step forward when we need them most. In 2020, somehow, I managed to get on a plane to Israel to find out more about these secret souls and hear their stories. This is my journey to find wonder and goodness in our once magical world. We knocked on our door on a Sunday morning. Her house looked exactly as I expected. Soothing light blue colors were everywhere, and the air smelled so fresh. She opened the door with a huge grin. She embraced us with a tight squeeze, and then suddenly she became frantic. She's waiting on something. She won't tell us what. Did we intrude? Should we reschedule? Really, it's fine, I tell her. We can come back later, maybe next week. She insists that we sit and that she will be with us in a minute. A minute passes. The thing she's waiting for didn't arrive. She refreshes her computer, then her phone. Finally, suddenly, it arrived. She lets out an exciting scream, and she runs to her printer and returns with a piece of paper, as if she has a golden ticket. She signs it, takes a picture, and sends it somewhere, and then looks at us calmly and says, I'm with you. She then explains what it was. In the pandemic, she tells us, many members of her community and her synagogue lost their jobs, and some were at risk of losing their homes. These were people who never expected to be in the situation, but nonetheless were. So the community came together. The paper she signed ensured that a member of her community will be able to pay rent. She wouldn't speak about this on the record. In a way, it underscored why we wanted to speak with her. Here is my conversation with one of the nicest and most wholesome people I've ever met. This is my conversation with Rabbi Tamar Applebaum. So we are here with a dear friend of mine, Rabbi Tamar Applebaum. Thank you so much for joining us. Shalom. Thank you. So can you tell me first just about your congregation and uh, about your role there? Our congregation is called Zion. First, I want to say about Zion that it's the name of Jerusalem. It's a congregation named after the city of Jerusalem. And it's a congregation that really believes that our forefathers went to Jerusalem, they walked to Jerusalem, and it would be a tragedy if we living in Jerusalem would stop walking towards Jerusalem. So we walk towards Jerusalem. It's a congregation of hundreds of people. And what's very unique about it is that it has Jews from all different denominations and lives. If you come to Shabbat evening to the congregation, you'll see someone who's Haredi, ultra-Orthodox. You'll see someone who's Chiloni, secular, one with jeans, another wrapped children, very elderly people. Many times you'll see generations of a grandfather and mother and a child and uh, their grandchild and even another generation. And there's something very beautiful because when we set our road, when we started walking, we wanted to be more like our grandparents. And in what way? Our grandparents didn't live in boxes. They didn't call one orthodox and the other secular. They lived as a family. It was a family. 
that had place for everyone. My grandfather, for instance, from one side, from Morocco, the other is from Ashkenaz, from Germany and France. But the, on the Moroccan side, had seven children. And all of them had a place around the table, one with a kippah, the other without a kippah, one from a kibbutz, the other from... All of them had a place. And my grandfather would leave no child behind. All of them had a place. So here in Zion, in Yerushalayim, we dream of being a family, coming back together, gathering the exiles, all denominations, all thoughts, all styles, lifestyles. We come together and we sit together, we pray together, we dream together. We try to be mentioned together and to lead a life that we could be proud of, a life that has kindness and help and solidarity and thought of the person next to me, the one I know and even the one I do not know yet. It's the honor of my life to raise our daughters, our family, our children, and to be a part of a community of people who have kind hearts. So tell me about your family. You know, you never understand, and it unfolds slowly in life, the importance of the cards you received in your life and how varied they are. Think about what it means, a Moroccan family from Casablanca on one side and an Ashkenazi family on the other side, each one coming from such different worlds, such different relationships, one coming from the Holocaust. In France, most of my family was murdered in Auschwitz. And the other coming from Casablanca, having very good relationships with the Muslims. How do you cope with that and bring that together? But when my parents started their family here in Israel, they looked around and they saw especially secular and orthodox. And much of the moderation and sweetness of moderation in their family, they felt that here in Israel they had to decide differently and they became orthodox. So when I grew up, I actually knew only orthodox Jews. I never, until the army, met a non-orthodox Jew. I knew only orthodox Jews. I thought Jews were all orthodox. And I remember the first time I met in the army a secular person. And I remember that he told me, but you come from a Moroccan family and your family on the other side is Ashkenazi from France, from Strasbourg, knowing all these moderate traditions. Go back to your grandparents. <laughs> and I went back to my grandparents. It was when I really rediscovered my grandparents. And suddenly I saw that they had brought here such a beautiful tradition of moderation. And I sat with them and learned from them. And they taught me all the ancient traditions of our families of accepting each other and giving ourselves dignity. That the family is the place where you give dignity to each other. And today as a mother, that's what I try to be, to give each one of my children place and to give them dignity and to do exactly what my grandparents taught me. And so speaking about your husband and your daughters, Tell me a little bit about them, and uh, I'll have a follow-up to that as well, because I remember something very specific and very special about you as it relates to your family from a few years ago. I can't wait to hear yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you remember about me. Yossi is uh, my sweetheart from the age of 14. I met him at the age of 14 when we um, were brought together to schools. As I learned in the Orthodox community, I was only in a school of girls in Pelech, a wonderful school. And he was in a school of boys, Himmelfab. And they brought us together, and we were supposed to speak about what does it mean for us to be Jews. And of course, I couldn't stop speaking. And there was one beautiful boy who sat silently and listened, and that was Yossi. He sat and listened, and he taught me that listening is so much more important. And I remember that day, 
that very slowly at the end of the day, he started speaking. And it was very clear that he had listened to everyone and that through the voices of everyone, he was trying to understand not what does it mean to be one Jew, but what does it mean to be many Jews coming together. And that's when I fell in love with him because he taught me not to think in I, but to think in we, in us. And I wanted to create this us with him. And you did. So yes. tell me about the us. We have three daughters. Our eldest, Halil, is a 16-year-old. She just started her driving license uh, journey this week. How are you so calm then? <laughs> <laughs> that is such a good question. I asked her if they can start with theory and never get to the actual driving. <laughs> but I, I know she will be such a prudent and uh, wonderful and responsible driver. And uh, our second daughter, Ziv, her name is Glow. Glow. And she indeed is a glow. She is this mischievous, incredible, smart girl. She's now 14. And our youngest daughter, Be'eri, it means a well. Be'er. Be'eri is the well of life and the well of love. She's eight years old and she's our little, it's like a chocolate bar. She's our little sweet sweetness dessert of the family. When I met you two years ago, the girls were younger. And I remember, you know, your husband has a very successful career as well, very busy, just like you are. And you said something that struck me, which, you know, we can't just do it, the two of us. We need someone to help with logistics, carpool, driving, watching, you know, your then six-year-old. It's a very rational, very common thing. And then you said to me, but we don't have anyone. It's just my husband and I. We make it work yeah. because our daughters support our work. I'm so happy you remember that. <laughs> <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> I'll remember it, but I will not practice it one day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. You know, I'm a rabbi. Too many rabbis have paid the price of the children not being with them enough. And my teacher, Professor Alice Shalvi, who taught me so much of what I know today, who created the school, the feministic Jewish school of Pelech, taught me not to give up on my family. The price can't be family because everything we're doing is to bring back the family. So how, how can I give, give someone else the privilege and the gift of being with my daughters? Our daughters have so much time in school and in other places, but I find that it's really important for me to be the one sitting with them. You know, just the little things of uh, sitting and eating together, learning together, helping them prepare for exams, escorting them to different things. It's my job to give them a feeling of security and of parenthood. If I want to be responsible for people in this world, I first have to be responsible for my own children and to teach them that I am willing to escort someone from the beginning to the end of his life. I will never give up and I will always protect him and allow him to grow wherever he or she needs to grow. So I'm a very proud mother and I, and as a rabbi who is very invested in Am Israel and in the human family, before anything I'm invested in my family. And also, I invest a lot of time in being, I always say that a rabbi is a parent. It's being the parent of a collective family called Am Israel, which I believe in so much. So Yossi and I are very, very supportive and devoted parents. And you'll see us, you know, in all these things in school and bonfires. And, uh, and sometimes I look at myself and I say, how can one do that? I think the modern world is very difficult to do both. But I know one thing, we are not supposed to choose between our family and our shlichut and our role in life. The role we received in life, its biggest support is the people we love. So we have to find the way to do both. And we cannot create a world in which 
our community or our people or our duty are in contrast to our families. We have to bring them back together. The price we pay, not only as parents and not only as human beings and as spouses, is not a price that only we pay. It's a price that everyone pays. The big us needs the intimate us. So I think this is really important. And I feel this is about ethics, really. You know, we live a very unethical life in many ways. Everything is very put apart. And I think we have to create sort of a commitment to live life in a way that comes together. Just the way we speak about nature and ecology, we have to speak about our time and the people we love. And we have to create systems in which we sustain the things that are most important to us. The message cannot be to our children that something is more important to them. What we, what we are doing is because of that. And I'll tell you one last thing. You know, there's a beautiful Torah that a woman that brings a child to the world is supposed to sacrifice a sacrifice. Back then in Bet HaMikdash, in the Temple Mount, a sacrifice as if she had sinned. And Rabbi Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, who was a rabbi many years ago in Germany in the 19th century, said, but why does she need to pay that sacrifice? And he says something beautiful, because a woman that just gave birth might think that the life she has brought is all her duty, but it's about raising them. That's her duty, not the body, the soul, the education. So we are here about education. We are here about hope and about life, and about telling a little child, everything is waiting for you. Dream big. Dream all your dreams. I have to say that in my house and outside my house. And the last thing I'm going to say is that Israel, the Zionist project, is all about finding a house. So we need to create small houses within one big house that all reflect all the ideals of the education of the body and the spirit that we speak of. Amazing. And it, it goes both ways because your husband, he does the same thing, yeah. right? Some nights he will be running around Jerusalem with the girls. Other nights, you. Other mornings. And I just always thought it was such a honest portrayal of parenthood and professional ambition, knowing that the two are actually, in a way, teaching the greatest lessons to your girls. Yossi, my husband, makes the world better. Really, in so many ways, in his wisdom and the things he creates in the world of high-tech and as a volunteer, what he creates in teaching women and young people to defend themselves. Every time I'm in the house, I delight on being with our daughters and I delight that the world is becoming more full of light, thanks to him. So I want to pivot. It's not so light, but to darkness, which happens sometimes in life. How did your role as the leader of your community and of your, your synagogue change in March 2020? And uh, what's it like today? I'm happy you're talking about darkness. You know, the beginning of the Torah is about darkness. There's no reason to speak about life and light if you think everything is life and light. Uh, the, the challenges of life. Don't worry, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> our darkness. Uh, and I love even the candidness of the Torah saying, at the beginning, there was darkness. So darkness is a very important part of our life. Yossi and I, when we founded Sion eight years ago here in our house, 
We founded it because of Zionism and because of our moral duty. It was our moral duty to create a place where Jews come together and make the world better in Jerusalem. The community was very small at the beginning, very intimate. We would meet in the house or in other places, and we would know each other. Slowly the community grew, more people, many more people. March 2020, suddenly we stopped seeing each other. Intimacy stops. I have no idea what happens to the people. Are they okay? Did they get COVID? How do the elderly have uh, groceries? What do they do? I think the feeling of intimacy being so abruptly stopped and the feeling of responsibility when you are far away and there are many people and you don't even know what to do because you've never gone through anything like that in your life. And we're a family, we have children, we have parents. What do you do? This was the most incredible moment for me as a rabbi because I actually realized we have a community and we created very swiftly. In two or three days, we created a system. First, we started broadcasting Kabbalot Shabbat on Shabbat evening, just to make sure everyone has a dose of hope. And I want to say, I don't think I understood how important it is until COVID, truthfully. I suddenly understood in COVID that some of the resilience of people is spirituality. Spirituality is a form of resilience. You know what happens around you, and you stand upright, and you say, I will hold on to solidarity and to hope. And so many people, it became bigger and bigger until on the high holidays, right after, 30,000 people were with us on prayers. It's incredible. Joined you at your shul, the yeah. global Jewish community. Yeah, in Zion. Really? I, I know many communities went through that, but it was incredible. We did it together with Israel Ayom and with the Hartman Institute. And 30,000 people came, in Israel. In Israel came to pray with us. Wow. And abroad, I think, also too a bit. But parallel to that, we did many more things. We started having a broadcasting of uh, a network for people to learn together, to even walk around Israel. We had trips to Morocco and trips to all kinds of places in Israel from the living houses of so many people. <laughs> we had a group of people who bought groceries and medicine for people who needed it, who couldn't leave their houses. A group of people who helped people who got COVID and needed help. A group of people who created buddies and spoke to each other every day or every two days to see how each other, how they are. And it was amazing for me to see how the whole community found itself really working together. And it wasn't me. I didn't do these things by myself. It was us. Many, many people held it together. And I saw solidarity at its best. And you know what? Today, when Mamash, very lately, we came back to praying Panim El Panim together, I think people feel closer to each other. Suddenly, someone who became part of the community who lives outside of Jerusalem came for the first time, and we saw him actually for the first time. And these moments in which you realize that you became stronger, you became closer, you became deeper because of COVID and in spite of COVID, these are moments in which you understand what human beings are all about. In these moments, we could either be working only for ourselves and closing and shutting ourselves away from the world and living in sort of a survival mode or being the best we can be. And I saw our community, everyone, the children, the youth, the elderly, the best they could be. So today I'm much more in awe of my community, of our community. I believe in it more than I ever have. And I feel that it could really be a moment for not only our community, but many communities all around the world 
to remember what they were in this time from March 2020 and to make the world more like that, more intimate. The world is very, very, it races against each other. People race against each other. They grab onto life. They want more. They feel that their life will be better if I'm young and have more, more money, more beauty, more time looking around the world, seeing the world, traveling the world, more for me. But we pay a lot of prices for that more for me because suddenly we realize that the prices is that this me lives alone, lives by itself. The resources of this world are not endless. There's enough for all of us, but there's what we need for all of us. What would happen if I would take less and think about the person next to me a bit more than I think about more for me? What would happen if I would know that he would take care of me as I would take care of him? What would happen if I would be more modest and think of less and ask if I can take a bit less because there's someone who needs it? And I feel that COVID made us a bit more modest. We needed air. We needed health. We needed to protect ourselves. But more importantly, we knew for the first time that the person next to us is dependent on us and we need to take care of him of our grandparents, of many people. And I think maybe humanity received a wake-up call from history to become more modest and more intimate. Intimacy has a price, but the price we pay for not living in intimacy and racing against each other is much, much, much higher. We're starting to realize, especially more so with some of the interviews with rabbis, religious people, people who live and read lives of Torah, that living in this place, sometimes you stumble upon great coincidences. You know, you're reading a chapter of the Talmud or something, and the street name that you're on, where you have a moment, is the same as oh, beautiful. as kind of like whatever you're reading about. How do you struggle or wrestle with coincidence and like divinity <laughs> living in this place where you could so easily every day when you walk out of this beautiful home stumble on both? Wow. Coincidence is one of the most powerful forces in life. We have no idea what would happen to us in a year from now. And that's the truth. We have no idea how long we have in this world. I have no idea how long I have to live in this world, what I will see in my life and what I won't. I work so hard and I believe in hard work. I'm a very hard worker. But I know that all this hard work could be changed in a minute because of coincidence, because of life. And that is why I think you need to have some form of listening and of modesty in order to take seriously the coincidences of life. Many things happened to me in my life, coincidences that I didn't want to go through. What I made of them was the most important thing. And I think, by the way, this is one of the most deep understandings of the ancient Jewish tradition. Things happen all the time. We're not in control of many, many things in our lives. But you are not the story of what happened to you. You are the story of what you made out of it. You're free to give it meaning. We didn't want to be slaves in Egypt. We didn't want to go through the Shoah, the Holocaust. These were tragedies made by people. But what happened to us and what we found ourselves caught in gave us the possibility to be free people who choose their destiny, to choose what to make out of them. What you said before about light and darkness, darkness comes upon the world every once in a while. 
it's not fully coincidentally. There are all kinds of things that make it happen. But I think when darkness comes, darkness is a malady. It's an epidemic. And it just comes all around you. And when things happen without any intention of anyone, that's even worse. You don't even know who to point out to. It's not them, and it's not him, and it's not her. It happened to me, an accident. I lost my job. Things happen to us. But it's about what we make out of them. It's about the ability to believe that you are a free person. And you can give meaning to every moment, just like Jews have done all around history. Things happen to them all the time. And they said, okay, I will not be a slave of what happened to me. I will give it meaning. So I want to give you examples of coincidences that happened to me, that changed my life completely. The first coincidence is that I met my teacher, Alice Sharvi, by coincidence. You know, she came into the school. She taught me a lesson. It was a lesson about Shakespeare. I never heard about Shakespeare. And I remember I coincidentally didn't have the right shoes that day. I came to high school. My shoes were completely soaked because I wore the wrong shoes for school on a rainy day. They were soaked, soaked, soaked to the end. And she looked at me and she asked me about my socks, if I need help, if I need dry socks. And she gave me hot chocolate and I met my teacher. And that day I said to myself, if I met a woman who cares about my socks and she knows how terrible it is to be a whole day like that, I met someone who really has a good, kind heart. She couldn't teach until she saw my socks being changed to dry socks. And I went to her and I asked her what made her a person who cares so much. And I met my teacher. So it's funny you say teacher. It is today the yard site of my teacher. Wow. It is Ilya's Jewish yard site today. Wow. Which wow. is um, by coincidence that we're sitting here today in your home. That's why I ask about like coincidence, right? Because the pessimist sees a coincidence. The optimist sees an opportunity or sees what was meant to be. And how do we live in the middle and kind of the wonder of which one is it instead of the cliche of definite because nothing in this world is definite or white or black. Exactly. The change is you. It's like this beautiful Hasidic story about the person who held a butterfly in his hand and asked his rabbi, is this butterfly alive or dead? And his rabbi said, it depends on you, on your hand. So if you let it go, it'll be alive. If you crush it, it'll be dead. And that's where every human stands all the time. We hold the butterfly. The butterfly is our soul, our dignity, our future, our hopes for ourselves and for others. And it's in our hand, really, if we crush it or let it fly. And you need a lot of hope, but also trust to open your hands. The ability to open one's hands, it's, 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 it's not easy. We cling to our mother, to our parents, to life, to money, to all kinds of things. To open the hands, to be generous enough to yourself and to the world, to open them, to let go. That's a huge thing. And Ilya, your teacher, which was a great teacher. And it's incredible that we meet today in his Hebrew day of Yotzeit. It's incredible. He was a man of vision. When you have vision, you open your hands. You have to know on one hand where you're going to. You have to care enough to be worried. You cannot have vision if you're not a worried person. Meaning you have to have something, know something about darkness and about light. It's not enough to have ideas. 
If you want to create something, you need hands and you need to open them. Only when they're open, you can start working, building streets, schools, supermarkets, hospitals, shoals. You need hands and they need to be open and work together. Wow. Well, that's a lot to take in. Thank you. Um, the final question, because time is valuable and your time is extremely valuable. We're asking everyone, is there a line of Torah, of Talmud, of a song, a verse, something that is the oil in your tank that allows you to continue to give and be light and goodness in this strange world and in this beautiful country? Wow. I feel all the Torah is coming and asking me to, 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 to say it. What do I do? <laughs> it's like all these little cartoons yeah. of a Torah. <laughs> no, go away, Bereshit. <laughs> you know, there are many. But I can tell you that every time I sing Hatikva, it's very meaningful to me. I know it's new. And I know it's not from the Torah. But I think all the Torah created that beautiful line. Kolot belevav pnima. What does it mean? Kol od balevav pnima. As long as I have a heart. And as long as it looks inside. Pnima. Pnima is inside. I look inside. Listen, you could live your whole life opening a newspaper and looking there, outside, to numbers, sociology, statistics, what happens in politics. But it would always take you away from your deeper intention. You need to have an intention. Kolod Balevav Pnima says, we came here to hold on to an intention and then walk with it openly in life and make something for ourselves and for the world. Kolod Balevav Pnima. When I walk in Jerusalem, Moroccan on the one side, Ashkenazi on the other, a mother, a person who wants this world to be a good world, I look around me and I see people who say kol od. They say as long, as long as I have life, as long as I am here, as long as there are other people around me which want this world to be a better place, as long, as long as I have breath, as long as I have hope, as long as I have dreams, as long as I see children in this world, as long as Jews say Yerushalayim, the word Yerushalayim, l'shana ba'a b'Yerushalayim. As long as all of this happened, someone trusts me that I'm needed here. So I will trust it too. We are needed here and we can make this world better. COVID taught us that we can be better people. It taught us that we can make this world better. It taught us that we can cure and heal epidemics, not only COVID, hatred, racism, anti-Semitism, gaps between people, injustice, bring people to feel the dignity wherever they are in the most equal and the most modest way, as long, kol od. Kol od of pnima should not only be for Israelis, it should be for every person who says, as long as I opened my eyes this morning and I have a heart, pnima, the word pnima inside in Hebrew comes from the word panim. I want to see the faces of the world, of the people in the world. Everything important is in your face, your eyes to see, your ears to hear, your mouth to speak and console, to negotiate, to create together. The most important thing is pnima, 
It's in your panim. That's why we say in Lechadodi, Pnei Shabbat Mekabla. We want to receive a face. So as long as we are here, we can give our face. We can meet other people. We can meet their face and create a world that really is more internal, more intentional, and not only is more hopeful, but is worthy of being more hopeful. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. And I hope that the sound picked up on the birds because that's oh. uh, the universe clapping for everything that you've said so far. So, And everything that you will continue to do and say to lift up people during such challenging times, even for your community still. But with you uh, at the pulpit, we're all better served. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Toda. I usually try to look through people like Rabbi Tamar to find their faults, their fakeness, their true thoughts and feelings and judgments. But with her, I can't. I leave her apartment thinking she knows something I don't about life, about Jerusalem, about the universe, about people, about pain, about strength, and about love. So I mute my pessimism, if only for the ride back to Tel Aviv and I look out the window, trying to see the world like her. Its goodness and hurt, lessons and unfair punishments, its grit and its grace, and I smile. I spent the morning with a good person, a really good person. That carried me for the rest of the day, and that was enough. Thanks for joining me on 36. This podcast is hosted by me, Justin Hayat. Our managing producer is Sarah Shemla. Our executive producer is Attila Samfalvi. And our editor is Robert Scarmuccia. This is a production of Soul Shop and sponsored by B'nai Zain. Please rate and review this podcast in your podcast app of choice and share it with your friends, your butcher, and your shadchan. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you again soon.